0: Hello and welcome to another Monkey Sea Monkey Review podcast. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. We're very, very glad to have you. If you've not listened to the Monkey Sea Monkey Review podcast before... Again, you're very welcome. I'm Scott and each time out I am joined by one or more members of the Monkey C family to talk about what we've been watching, including recent releases, anything that's flying under the radar and some all-time classics. We also talk about the ever-shifting landscape of film, uh, defend maligned, overlooked or underappreciated movies, uh, which we'll be doing this week, uh, certainly with a maligned movie, as well as our regular pitch battles and our always-expanding Tracks of the Trade movie score playlist. Uh, Joining me this week, we have a full complement of the Monkey Sea family. First of all, the magical Mr. Christopher Commander. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, Chris. Uh, We also have the magnificent uh, Mr. Kevin Haney. Ahoy, ahoy. Hello, chaps. And the marvellous Mr. Craig Woodfield. Hello there. Welcome. Hi, Craig. How are you?
1: Oh, splendid. Fantastic. Thank you, splendid.
0: And as for the rest of the... I was going to say, for Craig, you're not you're no longer classed as a newbie. This is your third episode. You are a you know, fully paid-up member of the team now, so... <laughs> oh, yeah. and I feel that way too, thank you. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. So are we all keeping well, gentlemen? Keeping
2: well, yes. Yes, yeah. Yeah, very, yes, very well, The weather's well, starting to get a little bit nicer now, isn't it? It is. It can actually go
3: outside and enjoy the sun.
0: Absolutely. It's that time of the year, just as we're starting to get into spring... And uh, you know, as, as movie lovers, what we're really looking forward to is spending most of the next couple of months on the inside <laughs> of the cinema watching the the, the big summer blockbusters. Yeah, so, very excited uh,
2: about that. It's, it's usually this is the time of year where the um, well, the Oscars usually take place in February, don't they, or towards the beginning yeah. or end of February. Um, usually, this time of the year, is the ones that the films that you didn't get to see pre you know that weren't released in the UK that got the BAFTAs but they didn't end up you know, they got the Academy Awards but we hadn't seen the films yet. You'd usually be kind of seeing them now before the summer blockbuster season starts for another year. So, it's, uh, yeah, it's yeah. a bit weird, isn't it? It's discombobulating at the moment. All of, it this is. Kind of like, uh, yeah. The film releases,
0: it's a great unknown with them at the moment as uh, you know, where they're going to turn up in terms of streaming services. Um, are they going to be? Straight onto a streaming service, are there going to be premium video on demand? Sometimes
2: they just appear, uh, don't they? You just, you just, yeah, a fr- it's Friday night and you're like, oh, there we go. There's that film that I was looking forward to and completely forgot about.
0: And, of course, with you mentioning that earlier today, so the day that we're recording this, the Oscar nominations were released. So we will be referring to them in some way throughout the course of the episode. But we will be close to the time of the Oscar ceremony itself. We'll be taking some time out on the Monkey See Monkey Review podcast to talk about Oscar nominations and our Oscar predictions also talking about the the, the summer blockbuster season I mean we've also had an opportunity particularly with uh, Star having been released recently to catch up on a, a few a few classics I know I, uh, I went back to that heady summer of cage of uh, 1997 and uh, rewatched Con Air uh, I was just just in the mood that was the the right film for my mood that night and i have to say you know even this many years on it still holds up and considering you know if you listen to the stories about conair that not everybody was completely happy on the set of conair it actually still translates as a a lot of fun
2: it was a pretty Um, pretty testosterone driven set wasn't it the funny thing about conair is it's kind of i think it's as stupid and overblown and ridiculous as it ever was and it was like that on release and you've got to be pretty kind of like weird to try and Fight a case against how ridiculous and overblown Con Air is because everybody Absolutely. was in on the joke. Definitely, and yeah, I, the script is still you know,
0: very witty. The action still completely ridiculous. It does slightly, uh, slightly go off the rails at the end, uh, but for the most part, it's just a it's just a great laugh, and it's it's the perfect sort of late night with a cold beer and just veg out and not not have to concentrate on anything perfect movie for that and uh, yeah i i very very much enjoyed revisiting that
2: i remember when uh, conair opened i think it was like june of that year wasn't it and uh, we we got it funnily enough we got it the week before america got it because i remember america and us we kind of like it was i think it was switched around they got face off first and we got conair first and i remember um uh, on the Friday in the Odeon Chelmsford, the sound system, what they used to do is they used to have issues with their sound system and the Friday night would usually be the night where they kind of tested the volumes on things. So if you saw a film on opening, uh, opening day at the Odeon Chelmsford, generally the volume was always too high and I remember literally while watching Con Air having to put my fingers in my ears because it was like being at some kind of like concert. It was so loud and over the top, but uh, loved every minute of it. <laughs> Went to see it the, um, the next Sunday, which I think might have been a national cinema day. Um, paid my pound God. to go and watch it again. And uh, unfortunately, they'd altered the sound system or either that or I'd gone deaf. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Kev, I know you were mentioned just before we started recording, uh, you've also been revisiting some things on uh, on Disney Plus, Star indeed, and a, yeah, a bit of a bit of a bit of a Cusack link.
2: Yeah, well, like I was saying to you guys earlier, you'd be very surprised to see a lot of the films that have popped up on Star seem to be kind of late late nineties, um, early noughties. Uh, you can kind of see he was under contract by either Touchstone or Hollywood Pictures at that time, uh, and you get a lot of films with the same actors in. Um, I mentioned earlier. Uh, uh, was it Hank Azaria who pops up in Gross Point Blank which I watched recently with John Cusack uh, and obviously High Fidelity as well that was on there so I've been watching those and it's the first time actually I've seen either of them in HD um, and it was quite good actually it seemed to be quite a lot of um, it was more effort than you would have thought gone into the mastering of them because I know they've been released on blu-ray haven't they? but um, I hadn't actually ever seen them on anything other than like a standard DVD. I was quite impressed with the transfers. They were quite good. So yeah, Conair, uh, sorry, Conair, um, Gross Point Blank and High Fidelity were two films that I'm happy to report are still as good today as they were back then.
0: Oh, fantastic. So that's one thing, particularly with High Fidelity. I mean, I I watched Gross Point Blank reasonably recently and still very much enjoyed it, Um, but I've not seen High Fidelity since it was released. So,
2: how that holds up, it's very... kind of over time. Do you know what? Particularly it's... with kind of some of the sexual politics yes. <laughs> involved in it. Some of the sexual politics, and there is actually just the the TV show, isn't there? That's just started the High Fidelity with female and yeah. the, the the kind of like the the role, the protagonist role that uh, John Cusack played in this one. Uh, still, and Zoe Kravitz. Zoe Kravitz, yeah, who's actually uh, Lisa Bonnet was uh, in the High Fidelity film. Is her mum right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there we go. So it's all full circle. But um, yeah, you're right. The sexual politics, because I did watch it with my fiance and it's the first time she'd ever seen it. And there's a lot of kind of moments in it. But then you realise that, um, was me arguing this point, um, that uh, the fact that, you know, the point of the film is, is that he's obviously not a very mature guy and and he's got to do a lot of growing up and he's got to come to terms with a lot of things about himself as well. So initially (laughs) you look at it and you go, oh dear, this hasn't aged very well. And then as the film goes on, you realise that it was supposed to be that way. (laughs) Even though I used to very much identify him. Certainly more than I did Martin Blank from Gross Point Blank, because I'm not a hitman.
0: (laughs) Indeed. So, uh, Chris, Craig, have you been checking out anything of interest of late?
1: Well, I actually got to, uh, using Star, I got to watch Arachnophobia uh, which is I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago as yeah. something I was looking forward to. I had to wait till the rest of my family were out, oh. uh, just because the sheer idea that I'm watching a film about um, spiders would probably, you know, send them bananas. Um, <laughs> and I, th- I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I, I love the score, and I mentioned that a couple of podcasts ag- uh, ago. And it just, it sounded wonderful, looked great. Um, it's as creepy as i remember it being and i i don't really have a problem with spiders but it gives you that kind of oh more than eight-legged freaks ever did for me and it was a it was just a, a wonderful trip down memory lane not any stretch of one of my favorite films but just just took me right back and absolutely loved it so yeah and then obviously being what we're obviously watching what we're going to be reviewing today as well i didn't think
2: um i I don't think i could watch arachnophobia on my own are you craig in your household the uh, person that um throws spiders out of the door
1: Uh, yes Yes. Yeah, I was going
2: to say executes the spider policy, which is <laughs> yeah usually opening windows or something like that. But Yeah, yeah so I you, put the glass
1: over the top of it and then a piece of cardboard underneath and then, yeah, yeah. Textbook, throw, it, throw it out of the window. <laughs> Great.
0: I used to be a bit like Evan in the way that I wouldn't be the one to deal with the spiders. And then fatherhood happened and it became necessary that I became the one that, that uh, evacuated the spiders from the house. Uh, <laughs> particularly on one occasion, there was one that was probably an equivalent size to one of the spiders in arachnophobia <laughs> right outside my daughter's room. He was and, shaving. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it Yeah, it was. It was a big lad. And uh, apparently all that could be heard from downstairs is me repeating the phrase, oh god over and over <laughs> again as so, i as i was getting closer and closer to it which got quicker the closer and closer i got to this place i was like oh god, oh, a, god, oh, a god, a god oh god oh <laughs> god that's
3: what
0: that was i was <laughs> indeed yes yeah but uh but yeah i ever since then i've been i've been a lot cooler about it <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah so uh so yeah I, I really need to check arachnophobia out again i know i said that when we we discussed it last time but it's again it's just one of those films it takes you back to a time and it was just it's just great fun and kev you you do have to check it out it's
2: uh oh i saw, uh, I saw it when i was young and i've not I, I don't think to be honest that may have been the film that tipped me over the edge with spiders maybe the way i yeah. am with spiders now is because of that film Yes, I I don't think it helped me when I was younger uh, that I was I was
0: developing this fear and then I watched Arachnophobia and I was like Nah, screw that. Uh, <laughs>
3: well, so, when yeah. we all have our big watch party all together, we'll we'll do it we'll mm. do it together in a yeah. safe. And we'll hold your hands. <laughs> 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 I'll
2: just focus on the music, obviously, as Craig's recommended it. I'll focus on the wonderful score.
0: Chris, is there anything
2: you've been checking out? I rewatched Firefly
3: actually Ah. um it's been a long time since i've since i've watched that uh beautiful one season long show Mm. um and then i went on to re-watch uh the the sort of film serenity i do like Uh, serenity serenity's good yeah so it was good it was good to revisit those characters and see you know nathan fillion uh and, and all that those people back together again um I guess maybe it has a nostalgic feel to me because I do love it. But also, we were we were chatting about cowboys a few episodes back, and you know, it's a it's a classic space cowboy. <laughs> uh, Indeed, I think. Yeah. I think the, so
2: that was fun. It was fun to rewatch. I think the disturbing thing about you saying it's nostalgic is I come I th- I feel that that film has been released in recent history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like Fight Club. I count Fight Club as a film that was released recently. In fact, it was twenty one years ago. <laughs> oh. Yeah good lord <laughs> yeah I
0: mean we're talking 16 years I think for serenity Ooh, yeah. I, I believe it's 2005 so I mean even that's uh, you yeah, know that that's not when recent did, history
3: when did terminator 3 come out
2: that was 2004 was that 3 2003
3: oh, 2003, 2003. 2003 yeah, yeah, yeah it was
0: so. 2003 yeah oh dear oh okay <laughs> moving on <laughs> <laughs> Oh, one thing I did—I I, I caught up on um, a little little name check to a friend of the podcast and fellow podcaster M from Verbal Diorama. Uh, me and M have instituted a twice weekly uh, movie virtual movie night where we either see things that we both like or introduce. Each other to uh, to films that that we like, and then have a bit of a, a catch up and a conflub afterwards. And I saw for the very first time on Saturday night the Iron Giant, oh. uh, that, being <gasps> Brad Bird? A, yes, I say oh. being a Brad Bird fan, uh, and uh, it was a bit of a gap in my in my filmography. And you, what a delightful film that was! Did you cry? Uh, Iron really, Giant. really sweet and did, really did you, lovely. Did you cry? I I didn't cry. I did. I did feel the emotion, but I didn't cry. Oh, man. Just,
3: Okay. Well. Yeah. Well. Now. Just. Now. Just think of the. Beep. Beep. Yeah. Beep. Yeah. I, yeah.
0: Stop trying to break me. It's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's my job. <laughs> I still say it's probably. It's, it's probably a Vin. Tell us what you know. Tell <laughs> us what you know. It's a Vin Diesel career highlight. That. Uh, yes.
0: <laughs> I. I don't know. Uh, uh, Groot's. Uh, Groot's up
2: there. <laughs> yeah, he's, maybe yeah. He's, he's just good with voices. Maybe that'll be the thing. Maybe he has got a great voice. You can't. You can't deny oh, like that. He does have a great voice. You know. But when when you put him up against the rock, he's like. Was it someone said that he looks like uh, the rock when you've left him overnight in a bath? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not
2: my words. I don't know where that came from.
0: Speaking of another film, that I. I... We talked about it in the last episode, and it's one that I want to catch up catch up with again. But I I was on Netflix uh, searching for something to watch, and the trailer or the clip started for Saving Private Ryan, and I, it's easy to forget that Vin Diesel's actually in Saving Private Ryan, and there was a there's a nice little moment uh, where they're talking about uh, how. Uh, the, the tom hanks miller character would address his complaints to a, a senior officer and yeah it's just a nice little moment with with vin diesel in there and yeah he's uh he has his moments so he, it's v- very easy to forget that he was in private <laughs> yes uh, yeah but, so yeah we won't go into the, the mild spoilers but yes he's he, he doesn't he's not in there for very long <laughs> So, uh, right, so shall we talk about some of the newer films that we have been catching up on in this past week or so? Yes, please. Let's do it. Fabulous. So the first of our films this episode uh, is a much-belated sequel. It's Coming to America, directed by Craig Brewer and starring... Obviously, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall, and bringing back a good proportion of the the original cast, including uh, Sherry Headley, uh, James Earl Jones, and a lot of other. Uh, even smaller bit parts that uh, <laughs> that just <laughs> turned up for a couple of moments throughout, uh, throughout the previous film, uh, as well as Leslie Jones and Jermaine Fowler and Tracy Morgan also joining the cast this time, as well as uh, Mr. Wesley Snipes in a <laughs> small supporting role. Uh, so I managed to watch uh, Coming to America on Amazon Prime. And I believe Kev and Craig, you've both checked this out as well
2: have indeed yes i yes. uh I, I took the liberty of watching coming to america after a roast dinner on a sunday afternoon i thought i'm going to put this on and sit back and have a good laugh because coming to america the one from 1988 the original one that was it was 1988 wasn't it yeah um yes that was um it, it was one of growing up my kid my films that i watched like throughout my childhood over and over again i can quote it you know i can quote it till the cows come home but the the thing about it was was it seemed something a little bit naughty about it a little bit dirty because it was like a john landis film wasn't it at the time and Mm -hmm. he'd obviously come off of the back of working with eddie murphy with in trading places which is obviously another kind of like a tee hee hee oh this is a little bit rude i shouldn't be watching this movie um back when i was a kid and i think the thing about coming to america is it's probably everything you would expect it to be But it lacks, in my opinion, the kind of bite and fun and kind of like a little bit kind of naughtiness, rawness, I suppose, that the original Coming to America had. And I think a lot of it is, and it's not really been mentioned anywhere, really. And love him or hate him, the absence of John Landis here is really felt, I think. Uh, And I think Craig Brewer, a wonderful director and everything, but I think with John Landis, what he used to be able to get out of Eddie Murphy... um, in trading places and in the original coming to america um is kind of lacking here and i think eddie murphy who's obviously got a larger kind of like production credit uh, credit over this um he's more about it, it's this is this is post eddie murphy this is post haunted mansion eddie murphy this is the eddie murphy that you know has, has gone through around the uh the houses of making films for his kids and all of that kind of stuff So I think we're at a point now where this film is very safe and it seems a very odd property for them to have rebooted to put a safe Eddie Murphy vehicle out, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It was that kind of thing where a lot of people are going to come to it. And the film pretty much just, in my opinion, plays a play-by-play of, hey, do you remember this point in the first film? Why don't you go back and watch it? hey go back and watch it do you remember these characters they were funny weren't they go back and watch them in the original brilliant because we can't really swear here and I will say this they're not going to give anything away the entire film goes through without it I was sitting there thinking to myself I wonder when they're going to dispense the F-bomb their single F-bomb that they're allowed in a PG-13-12A when are they going to drop it and they don't drop it they go the entire film without a single f-bomb and that in an yeah. eddie murphy sequel to a comedy that was the kind of raw 1988 uh uh movie that you know the types of movies that it used to make uh was yeah. in my opinion a bit of a letdown i'm not saying that swearing's big and clever chaps but it would have certainly helped here i think uh Craig.
0: i mean com- compare and contrast just sorry to interject quickly i i after watching coming to america i did need a bit of classic eddie murphy and went back and watched the original beverly hills cop and you know that obviously he, he got youth on his side he was a you know, fresh 23 year old then but it's that energy and i don't i don't feel that he, he had the same energy or the vitality about the role he seemed really muted by comparison in this uh most definitely uh, uh, you know, after uh, having the palate cleanser of watching him as axel Foley, was uh, you know it was good to see you know a bit of Full fat Eddie Murphy go, you know giving it the the dialogue and you know the the, the, the naughty words but yeah. also the just the energy and the the humor and the yeah I think it, it, in his day he was was so so great
2: yeah eddie murphy's he wants to do a comeback doesn't he that's what he wants to do But he's got the netflix specials that apparently he's got coming and then that comedians in cars drinking coffee that he did with jerry seinfeld he was talking about how he's coming back he's going to be raw he's writing new material 2020 was supposed to be the year where he went back out of the circuit he started doing comedy again um and then Mm. you know possibility of the new beverly hills cop film beverly hills cop 4 that netflix are going to buy and all of that kind of stuff and i thought okay well a great place to start would be a sequel to coming to america let's see how it goes then the moment i saw that pg-13 rating i was like okay i think this is going to be a film that's probably going to be very muted i think a lot of the characters in it for example wesley snipes general izzy was a character that on the trailers you looked at and thought wow that's going to be quite biting and quite controversial but in fact was none of that the whole film didn't really even though it tried to do the kind of like hey let's be a little bit risky it never actually took that
1: dive craig what did you think of it i i i going to be controversial here i never really liked coming to america it was my least favorite of the eddie murphy films um when i was growing up and my family would put it on uh and i would watch or maybe just walk out the room so i didn't hold out much hope for really liking this one or finding it too enjoyable it, but i i found it fun you know and the the thing that i that took away from it was it looked like everybody had a great time making the movie you know, uh, which is why I think they perhaps put that, you know, the snippets at the end of, you know, the blooper reel and so on. Um, it, it is like they've made a diet version of Coming to America. And it it seemed to me like they were trying to address the balance of, OK, we know that we were, you know, misguided with some of the things like the sexist preacher. I think they mentioned that three times that he yeah. was a sexist preacher. Um, and it, it just like they were trying to atone for, for that, you know in in today's society, I found it an easy watch, you know um the strong- I thought the younger cast were probably the stronger um for me um it was it was okay at best um I would perhaps you know if I was to give it out of five, I'd probably go two and a half, maybe stretch into three um it like I say enjoyable. I really liked Wesley snipes uh in fact he seemed to be having a great time. I think I agree. Had you gone to a 15, then, you know, you can let them go a little bit more and maybe have them, you know, like the Eddie Murphy where he could riff with with anybody. If you had a little bit more of that, then maybe there'd be more to see in the screen and on the final cut, maybe. yeah it
2: kind of of felt like there were two films going on there was the hey look let's go back and see the old characters again and revisit them and then there was the kind of like the jermaine fowler story of him finding his you know like the younger generation And you kind of get the idea that maybe in the future they're like oh do you know what would be great is if we do a third one and we focus more on the kids and you know all that kind of stuff but you're right you think you hit the nail on the head there craig when you were saying they were trying to redress some of the kind of balance of that and i think that's kind of what it is really it was kind of like in a weird way an apology but the cast it was basically anyone who's anyone um, uh, in the kind of like African American community basically got a role in it and was doing well, with the exception of Dave Chappelle, who I think was going to have a role, uh, and Arsenio Hall had to take it because um, he, he wasn't available on that particular day. Um, but I think the. the best sequences in it are the kind of throwback sequences like the bar the shop with eddie murphy and arsenio hall when they're doing that banter backwards and forwards and i did read a uh, uh, an interview recently with eddie murphy that said that he basically sees or speaks to arsenio hall like every he, for the last like 30 years he's spoken to him like twice a week for 30 years yeah. and you can really see that friendship there and it made me think actually it was a shame that arsenio hall when he went from movies into talk show didn't he because he was he the kind of like the late shows um, yeah. Interview shows, with me over in the states? Um, we actually lost him from, you know, from the uh, uh, sort of mainstream films, and that was a shame because he was—he's actually still a very, very funny guy. Yeah, definitely,
0: definitely. I think I, I largely agree with with what you guys have said. I think yeah, it spends too much a proportion of the film retreading those beats and gags from the first film. Um, yeah, but once it hits its groove and starts focusing, particularly on Lavelle you know I, I think it becomes that bit more likable I, you know jermaine fowler's got a real uh, charisma about him and he was very watchable in that role um and it's also a brave film that devotes a whole story beat to mocking belated and unnecessary sequels
2: yeah which, well. I, which uh, that's the thing because that's i've seen that brought up in so many reviews and everything like that and i kind of think yeah. to myself i watched i revisited 22 jump street recently and as far mm. as I'm concerned, I don't think any film can make jokes about reboots and so, anymore because I think Twenty Two Jump Street smashed it out of the park with that yeah. kind of observation, and that seemed a little bit kind of lazy. Or the feeling that you kind of get the feeling that that joke was relevant when the script was written, and that was probably about 15 years ago. <laughs>
0: possibly, quite possibly. <laughs> I think of the uh, of the callbacks, the the only one because they, they kept repeating the uh, the. Lady barking like a dog too yeah. many times, yeah. uh, and it, which wasn't that funny in the first place. There is one <laughs> kind of callback that happens in the kind of the final reel of the film, and that's the one that genuinely made me smile and gave me a good laugh. Um, and, and like like Craig said, Wesley Science is clearly having an absolute ball, and, and that carries that carries over as well. Um, but it's just interesting going back to what Kev said about. Eddie Murphy wanting to kind of go back to that, that more, no pun intended, raw style of his, uh, that this is the film that follows Dolomite Is My Name, which felt a bit more in that, that direction for Eddie Murphy. That, that that was quite quite edgy by comparison. Yeah. Um, definitely a lot more foul-mouthed and, and, quite, and quite good fun. Um, this just feels like it's gone safer again. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, certainly
2: doing its thing, isn't it, really? It's a kind of a nice thing to kind of... Well, to be honest, it's quite a nice thing to watch with your family. And actually, to be honest, yeah. I probably would say that is true of the first one. But, there's, you know, you just haven't got things here that will make your nan blush. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so that's Coming to America, and that's on Amazon Prime now. So moving over to a film that uh, Chris and myself have both watched uh, it's on Netflix and it's called Moxie, directed by the brilliant Amy Poehler. So inspired by a mum's rebellious past and confident new friend, a shy 16 year old publishes an anonymous zine calling out the sexism at her school. Uh, so it stars Amy Poehler and uh, Hadley Robinson in the, the central Vivian character uh Lawrence Syers her best friend Claudia and Alicia Pascal Pena as the new friend in school, Lucy Hernandez. It also has uh in the supporting cast uh, son of the Austrian oak himself, uh Arnold Schwarzenegger, his son Patrick Schwarzenegger. It does indeed. It does indeed, yeah. Who just as a little sidebar, uh he plays a great douchebag and uh, isn't until <laughs> isn't until he smiles that you can see the similarity with his dad. Yes. So there's, there's 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 a real
3: look of his dad there, um, but yeah. But uh, he 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 pulls off the all-American jock very well. Yeah, horrible, horrible character. But yes, pulls off the jock
0: uh, very very well. Chris, how did you find Moxie?
3: I I admit that I I got sucked into it. Yeah. Um, I think I have a um, a slightly unique perspective on it because I went to an American high school. Yeah. Um, and yes, it plays with clicks and cliches and and those sorts of high school movie, American high school movie tropes that are out there. Yeah. But I also think that it's it's self-aware enough uh, that it doesn't delve too deep into those sort of tropes. Mm. You know, they exist, you know, they're there um they surround all of the characters but they aren't called out because that isn't the message of the film Yeah um it starts with a sequence in the woods I couldn't tell coming out of it if it was a smart telling choice or if it was trying to be too poignant I understood the message Yeah I got it she's she can't scream at the beginning she she doesn't have a voice yeah um but I, I it's um it it for me it hit and miss in in different places
0: yeah I think that's that's a really good way of putting it because that's that's one thing i I found with it that the central message of the film is you know it's it's really noble in that in that respect and I think it's really timely in that respect because the the way that the moxie magazine is is produced is to call out that kind of the patriarchy and the, the sexism in the school it's it's prompted by a publication of of a list of all of the different categories you know ranking all of the girls in the school from you know such crude things as kind of most bangable and uh, looking at their their individual uh, assets and ranking them and just that—that was, that,
3: that, that was a very clean way of putting that. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was. Individual <laughs> assets. Interesting. Um, and 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 kind of the natural frustration around that, uh, and you know, you see in certain characters that there are quite aggressive bullying, uh, harassment tendencies, and it almost starts a little bit like. Maybe it's going to go down a slightly darker route than than it, it ends
3: up being. I, I I got halfway through the film and I thought yeah, I was feeling the the tension that the characters were feeling, and the, yeah. there's a there's a there's a turning point that happens with her and one of the other characters. Mm. Um, it's hard not to give too much away because it's yeah. kind of formulaic in itself. There it aren't is. real surprises, mm. but there was one moment that I could feel myself getting a little tense and I was like, this could go dark really quick. Yeah. Particularly her relationship with one of the other characters. Yes. This is hard not to talk about. But it I thought is. that's that's the road if you want to make this message, yeah. that's the road. Now that message is going to make sense to the people who who watch the film. Definitely. But that message is touched on. Yeah. And it is brought up at the finale, I should yeah, say. Absolutely. Um, But again, it's not a surprise because they didn't go down the route that would make it a dark, troubling thing for the main character. Mm. And I think that's what's tough about this film is she deals with now. This feels like a a horrible because, you know, we're we're white guys talking about a film. Yeah. Um, She goes down the sort of trope of, of being able to she has a conversation with her mother about that. Her mother was rebellious as a kid during these, her high school year. And, and she finds a book full of her rebellious, like a a suitcase full of all her mom's rebellious stuff. Yeah. And, um, she has a sit down conversation over pizza saying, you know, how did you deal with this? Did you know, like, how did you know what to, uh, have a revolution about and her mom admits that she doesn't that she she didn't at the time that it was just stand up for anything that needed to be called out which is a great message yeah apart from the fact that she um which i think is a good message in its entirety of like none of us know what we're doing each day like we We as kids, look at adults and we go like "Oh they 've got everything planned. they know how life works, but when you get to like when you get past childhood, you realize no one really has no one really knows we're still making it up yeah. but I think she deals with being able to make the mistakes because she has white privilege and I know yeah. those are sort of trigger words, but she's able to make those revolutionary mistakes. And get away with it?
0: Yes, I think there's. Uh, the, you're absolutely absolutely right there. I think there are there are a couple of things. I mean, central to the story, I think the the message and the the story and the the idea around that unity between women and calling out yeah, harassment and sexism and and having that strength in numbers. I think is a really really strong message. And for the most part, I. I, I genuinely like the, the films are quite likeable there are there are technical things that i'm not so keen on but my biggest issue that, that kind of come twofold with the film is that by focusing on the vivian character there are a lot of really interesting characters and stories around her uh, the the lucy character who's the new girl and she's uh she's mixed race and she is really kind of vivacious from really interesting really strong and she is a Feels like a more interesting protagonist now. When you know that the, the the Moxie magazine is being produced anonymously, it kind of makes sense why they've they've gone down the Vivian route with it. But there are so many other characters and so many other stories that are only given lip service throughout the 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 whole yeah. course of the film that I felt would have made you know my my personal feeling is. I think Moxie would have been better served not as a film but as a series where you get to spend more time with each of the characters and, and seeing these issues and how they're impacted rather than, you know, there, there's a trans girl in there and her story is is literally picked up, put across and uh, sort of carried along with on the strength of just a couple of things without any real sort of... Delving into and really giving the spotlight to those issues, you know, there uh, L- t- uh, yeah. are LGBTQ those storylines that are sort of picked up very randomly throughout the film without without any development. And I think you know, it just felt and and particularly the the bit you were referring to later on that was, that's given kind of lip service at the end again just felt a little bit rushed over and not given the the time and space that it needed to 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 have any real impact similarly with with the male characters you literally have two extremes of
3: yeah
0: one male character who is so nice and one male character who is that what two male characters primarily that are so you know (laughs) to to coin a phrase they're on the douchebag end of of the spectrum yeah there are no shades of gray in between that and seeing how other male characters interactions within the school and how they're affected by what's going on you know the the unity story is very strong but I just feel that the hamstrung by having limited focus and limited time that there are that, that kind of almost feels like there's a more interesting story out there to be told and they're slightly hamstrung by the fact that you know the, and it does you know you, you, you use the phrase white privilege there is an element of that that you know, it's it's the it's the the, the pretty blonde haired white girl that's the one that's kind of the catalyst for all of this. And there, there feels like there's there are more interesting characters and more interesting stories. There is a there is kind of a, a reason for that, I guess. Um, but then there are things they could have done within the storytelling to have made that more interesting. And you know, the, you know, her best friend's story as well, coming from you know, there's there's kind of the cultural pressures on her as well as the the, the school pressures uh, having you know come yeah. from you know comes from a minority family and having those pressures as well as the pressures of school again other interesting stories and i th- you know i think it i don't want to sound like i'm i'm being unkind to it i just it just felt like there were missed opportunities um, mm-hmm. but on the whole it's it is a really likable film and i think the central message is strong it's something that that could be taken away you know as being a real positive and i think it's it's noble in the way that does that i just i was i was almost expecting and almost wanting there to be more to it
3: yes i think what's really difficult about it and putting it in such putting the issues have such a larger scope than what you can portray in this kind of film yeah and i think I I struggled with the idea of Vivian dealing with this stuff and there's one moment in it. Uh, again, this is so hard not to talk about yeah. the specific moments, but there's one moment that, that she's dealing with the fact that she she wants to stand up for things, but doesn't. Mm. She's dealing with that sort of, uh, this is the way life is. We just hang our head in shame and we kind of don't think about it and move on. Yeah. Um, and I found that I found that interesting that the one thing I did like about Vivian was the fact that she was dealing with double standards hmm. throughout the entire film until she sort of has her moment. Yeah. Um, and I think that was nice to highlight. It was frustrating because as you said, there were other characters that I went, those stories are really interesting. Like her best friend, um, is, you know, she talks about her family and how her family got there in literally one throwaway line. Yeah. Um, Although I found her her best friend a a surprising highlight. The actress, I really, like, I was really on on par with her. Like, yeah. I sort of, like, felt her moment. She has one moment at the end that I was like, oh, God, I feel a little, like, you know, she felt that moment, and I felt it, too. That was quite good. Yeah. Um, it's tough. It is really tough. And it's... I, I, I mean, this is all coming from the fact that I came out of the film going, I liked that film. I yeah. did like that film. Um, it's... Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, it it kind of had an an easy A feel to it. That's one of the
0: things that I, as I was watching it, that I felt that it could have. Uh, I mean, I I put easy A and book smart. Yeah, had that that kind of vibe to to it. But they are just that tier above. And yes. I, I I thought the way that they both handled their relative stories within that in a in a much stronger way and. You know, am I am I putting too much too much emphasis on what is essentially a throwaway teen film? But uh, I think
3: because but, it, I mean, we talked about we talked about in in other podcasts wasted opportunities of yeah. messages, and I th- I don't think that this was a wasted opportunity of a message, and the message is really strong. It's just so hard to pack all of that story yeah. in the confines of an American high school, and it's funny talking about that list. Um, it feels like sort of a, you know, like a, a plot point that they just need to to, to drive home. But I, I, I'll admit, those sorts of things happen in American high schools. I was yeah. in an American high school, and in the yearbook, we deal with the fact that everyone gets voted like best dressed, who has the worst car, and they're kind of silly. But this is based on that trope. Yeah. Um, and you have a principal who's trying to be um, safe in the system, who is also a woman, which makes an interesting dynamic later on. Yeah. Um, Trying to be safe in the system and not cause a big deal about stuff, uh, which, you know, recompense and all that kind of stuff that that has to happen. um, Yeah. Comeuppances. But that being said, pointing down tiny little things about this film that i that i just did enjoy there's one yeah. moment where one of the characters uh is <laughs> uh is is talked about um again not trying to give anything away cuz i think you should watch the film i think yeah it, oh absolutely i, I agree yeah
0: yeah i think i like i say i think it's a it's a it's a nice film there's there's a lot to to get out of it it's just for me, it, it was it was kind of two thirds of the way to being a really really great high school comedy, and it just or well high school drama as well. I, I don't think it was particularly a comedy. I think it. Uh, I think
3: that's. I think maybe that's the issue. The fact yeah. that it's towing the line between both of them and not making a strong enough choice that if it wants to be satire, it should yeah. be satire. Or if it wants to go down those dark paths, yeah. it should it should lean into them. That yeah. being said. There are some moments in it that I just, I I enjoyed. I love Frank. When you watch the film, you'll know who Frank is. Um, I love watching over enthusiastic extras, always. There's a moment (laughs) where they're running through the halls and just just watch some background extras. They are amazing. Um, And one thing about films which I will never understand is why can't we have a moment, why can't no one in films surf the internet properly? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, there's one moment where she gets on a YouTube video and the playhead of the YouTube video just isn't moving, but she's watching a thing. We've surely passed this point now, <laughs> uh, filmmakers. Come on. Um, that being said, there's a moment that Livion Rose is in it, and Lavion Rose is one of my favorite songs of all time, especially in French, and uh, it will always get me. So, filmmakers out there, if you want to get me to have a moment, put Livion Rose in. Properly, and i will i will love you forever um what are my other little notes uh i made some (laughs) notes uh yeah there are some formulaic things which is kind of why easy a comes to mind like there's one moment where she has she has her hero anthem moment Mm -hmm. where there's a montage with a big rock song and she's like yes i'm making my transition and everything um but there are moments that sort of subvert that in a, in a, in a silly way. One of the characters gets talked about uh, in front of a big rally, and she's like, what are you doing? Um, I'm trying to eat, I've just ran for an hour. And it's just a nice little s- side moment that's done yeah. quite well. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah. I, And that's it's... why I don't want to ruin it because I think everyone should watch it, mm. make their own opinions. And I don't it's be aware that the scope of the issues that they're talking about is hard to fit into this. And I don't necessarily think all of them are touched on in the proper way. It's not no. like a race. It's not a, a race diversity thing, but it should be all inclusive. Yeah. So it's really difficult to pinpoint. It's, it's about silence. I mean, take the first 30 seconds of the film that's That's the premise. you have a character who is silent um and it's all about speaking up for all of the things that are wrong with the patriarchy and systems like the American high school system. Uh, so take that premise and 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 enjoy the film I think definitely yeah,
0: I think one the one thing I'll take from it is when I hit play on it, it <clears> that i didn't think that i would end up having this much to say about it at the end no nor did i Uh, which is which is great i it clearly it's clearly hit a nerve and just as a final point for me it sort of helped for me as well because since finishing watching parks and recreation a couple of weeks ago i have been getting amy poller withdrawal symptoms so it was nice to (laughs) nice to have her back in something uh so yeah uh so that's moxie which is on netflix now And so for our final review this week, uh, we're going to look at Judas and the Black Messiah, directed by Shaka King, uh, starring Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield and Jesse Plemons. Uh, It's the story of an FBI mole that infiltrates the Black Panther Party to get close to their charismatic deputy chairman, Fred Hampton. Now, Craig, you've seen this one
1: as well. Certainly have, yeah. How did you find Judas and the Black Messiah? Well... I came into this knowing very little about Fred Hampton. Um, having seen uh, the uh, the Netflix, the Trial of the Chicago 7, I knew a little bit um, coming into it. But, and I think I came at it from a, a perfect viewpoint for the film that you get for the, the two hours that it's on the screen. It looks amazing. The cinematography, which we will talk later on, but as has been recognised in the Oscars, it looks incredible it sounds incredible Um, that whoever has worked on this has, it's a labor of love from the costume design to the the camera operators. Um, And I think everybody's got behind the the passion that I think Shaka King has obviously poured out into the film. Um, And the, the the pivotal character of, of Fred Hampton is just, he's so enigmatic uh, as soon as the, the film starts. He draws you in um, and he, he starts at, from a very militant viewpoint um, and he draws the audience in and that's in no small part down to the acting. Uh, and of all the, the actors I'm gonna set, mention, not one is a weak link, not one single actor. Um, and you're drawn into the Black Panthers and you're drawn into this world that they are inhabiting. and. They obviously only show one aspect of what the Black Panthers are doing, but it's very community-led, and it it, it draws you in wonderfully. My first uh, negative that I would say about it is though that you are you see so many people on screen, but they never spend enough time with any of them, um, and that could be in part that it's it's not a biopic, so it's not about Fred Hampton, it's not about Bill O'Neill, it's about everybody around them but I find sometimes lacking when pivotal things happen to those Black Panther characters whether it be at the hands of the police or the government or whoever else it, um, I kind of lost a little bit of empathy because I didn't know enough about them I, I thought that they weren't explored enough maybe if they'd trimmed down su- who they focused upon then maybe that, that that would have added a little bit more to it and it not being a biopic Meant that I felt that I was missing something from Bill's story. Bill O'Neill, played by Lakeith Stanfield, uh, and Fred Hampton, played by uh, Daniel Kaluuya, that, but superbly. Um, yeah. It's it's just I felt like I was missing something. Um, do, yeah, do you understand I, what I mean?
0: Yeah, I, I I I can sort of see what you mean. There there was a little bit of yeah, some of the the backstory and some of that connection. It felt like. Uh, almost a little bit the, the sort of film that could have been half an hour longer, and could have spent more time fleshing out some of the the supporting characters around. Because a lot of these characters will have been you know based on based on fact, based on on real people that were were kind of in the Black Panthers and were in Fred Hampton's circle at the time. That yeah, you you get kind of the the, the charismatic, enigmatic. Fred Hampton, who, you yeah, know, Daniel Klee Klu- is absolutely fantastic in this. He's so, I mean, he's on he's on a hell of a hot streak anyway, because, you know, between, uh, between this and Get Out, and he was one of the best things about Widows a couple of years ago, and, uh, you know, being part of one of the biggest movies of all time in Black Panther, and he is just so, so watchable and so brilliant in everything that I've seen him in similarly with Lakeith Stanfield who again he was also in Get Out I, I didn't sort of because as a supporting character I didn't I didn't kind of pick up in him, him as a name until I watched Sorry to Bother You which again is a great great performance a real breakthrough for him and that and again he's turning up in loads of loads of great stuff he was in Uncut Gems uh, Sorry to Bother You he was great in and uh, turns up yeah, small but significant part in knives out and now this and i think the two of them because they've both been nominated as uh best supporting actor uh best supporting actors in the oscars this year which is interesting because um uh, almost feels like one might cancel the other out a little bit because uh but but neither sort of fulfill the role of, of kind of a, a de facto lead in the film though. That the the story focus does shift between the two of them. That you spend you spend some time with Fred Hampton, you spend some time with Bill O'Neill, and like you say, it, it's more in it's less around their characters and more around their place in history and how you know American law enforcement and American politics viewed them and dealt with them so rather than kind of being that character study so i i i totally get what you mean around and losing some of the the impact like you say empathy and impact around some of the supporting characters when when things happen to them uh, because we hadn't got to know them quite as well you you're absolutely right i i I sort of not really picked up on them but with consideration yeah i I totally I totally get that but then around these two you've got this film sort of hung around these two Real powerhouse performances, and and with that, it really propels you through it. And it is really fascinating, really really interesting film, and a, a real snapshot in a piece of American history. And I think with you know, films like Detroit and uh, elements of Trial of the Chicago Seven, and uh, One Night in Miami, and and now Judas and the Black Messiah it's painting a, a picture of that civil rights movement and, and elements of it. And I'm sure there are other films out there and it's, it's really, it's really interesting, particularly how timely this is with, you know, with the black lives matter movement and that, that move for, you know, greater representation, and greater equality. That it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, not just interesting. It's fascinating to see kind of that, those, those first big steps of the the civil rights movement to, see how it links to today um and and how that sort of impacts overall so i think in that respect is kind of a historical snapshot that's where i found judas and the black messiah most interesting and, and where it where it grabbed me most kind so of learning about the, these elements and you know the involvement of Edgar hoover which is a as kind of a barely recognizable martin sheen as a, a really really loathsome character um and it was, it was interesting because uh, the Jesse Plemons uh, character uh, again. Jesse Plemons is great again as he as he is in most things. He felt, I don't know how you felt about it. He felt quite ambiguous in uh, in his character. The film doesn't actually make kind of an active judgment on his character. It feels more like he's just they're just observing his his actions. That you know they're. There are moments where he is, you know, he's really warm to the Bill O'Neill character. And, and at that time, particularly with a boss like J. Edgar Hoover, who, mm. is, who was particularly anti, anti-black, anti he was he was very warm and very accommodating with him. But at the same time, he has this very direct, is is literally a black and white view that he, he says he views the Black Panthers and the clan as two sides of the same coin. Uh, and and doesn't sort of differentiate that his his role is is law enforcement, and so it doesn't make any great judgments about his character. But it's sort of interesting to to see his engagement. He's very sort of single minded in that view. Um, yeah, it's
1: the 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 final two scenes. I I th- I think the same exactly with with Jesse Clemens until the the final two scenes where hmm. you either see the real. Um, roy of the fbi or you see yeah. you see who he has become to get done what the fbi want to get done it's yeah and 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 they they never go oh it's definitely this is him this is the true him or yeah. has he become the the fbi agent that j edgar hoover needs and so on um yeah. and and the fact that they don't even address that in the the at the end of the film i think is is wonderful but it is chilling those last two scenes i think with, yeah with him definitely absolutely
0: but there's those moments throughout the film where you see them. All they build a rapport. Uh, you know the the, uh, the Bill character and and him. They build this rapport, and then when Bill O'Neill wants to step away, that's when the FBI agent comes out and basically gives him that ultimatum. How how do you want to play this? Because you know it's either do it this way or prison. Um, yeah. And it's that very it's that very direct. Means he is a means to an end to him, and like you say, technically brilliant. And I think Shaka King's a real one to to watch moving forward. Yeah, I know Daniel Kaluuya's has already landed an award for his his performance, and I could see probably more in the future. Uh, it's yeah, genuinely a a great great performance
1: yeah and i think it's a real shame that they didn't you know go for one as actor or you know even go for two in the the lead actor role because yeah it as a showcase for those two talents you know it's they are both phenomenal um screen time wise i would imagine it's around the about the same um but you know and i hope that they they like you say they don't cancel each other out and they do recognize one when the oscars do come around Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So Judas and the Black Messiah is on premium video on demand at the moment. uh, So it will cost you a little bit extra to watch it, but you know it's it's well worth seeking out. So brilliant! Thanks for that, gentlemen. We're going to move on to a a slightly dormant. Feature that we've uh, we've used in previous episodes, and it's time to revive it. This time, uh, we're going to do a little bit of in defence of. Now, the idea of in defence of is we're looking at either overlooked or maligned films, and you know, stating a case for them. They don't necessarily have to be greatly beloved films, or they could be films that you know, in future, that we we don't think have had the attention or the uh, the interest that maybe they should. Uh, but on this occasion what i've done is i've come for a slightly a potentially controversial option uh i took a bit of an opportunity to to watch the very first parts of the caribbean film curse of the black pearl a few weeks ago and it made me think you know you know which way do you look at it you know was curse of the black pearl a, a better movie than it had any right to be because it was based on a, a disney ride uh, or were the you know the sequels a real kind of waste of that potential so what I thought is, you know, a few years away, removed from that hype. How do these sequels now stand up? Uh, you know, are they are they ripe for a reevaluation? So over the course of a couple of nights, I went through and I rewatched uh, *Dead Man's Chest* and *At World's End*. Uh, we're only basically looking at the the main sort of original mainline trilogy of the Pirates films. Although I will refer to on Stranger Tides and uh, Salazar's Revenge or Dead Man Tell Ta- No Tales, depending on where you're listening to it. Uh, so braving the, the opening trilogy, I'm sort of gonna talk through both of the films, see how they could be defended. The idea is that, you know, with Malign films, what is there that's that that's kind of good about them, what's what's interesting about them, and you know, Curse of the Black Pearl, you know, I I I won't say I braved that one. It's still a ripping bit of fun. And it's a reminder about what a fun and and capable character the the, the Jack Sparrow character is, um, which is something that I think gets lost throughout the course of the series. I'll, and I'll kind of pick up on that a little bit later. So when I first saw Dead Man's Chest at cinema, I actually remember quite enjoying it. You know, it was a step backwards. But I kind of walked out after that Empire Strikes Back moment, and I was actually kind of, <laughs> kind of psyched for the, the the conclusion. I thought, oh, this this looks this looks like it could be could be quite fun. And for the most part, you know, the the, the film itself it, it does have it does have issues, but it does have some strengths as well. The first of which, and this is true of of Dead Man's Chest and at World's End, Davy Jones. Uh, bill Nye playing davy jones the film takes a noticeable kind of uptick in quality the moment we see the kind of the, the devil of the sea and of the fact that the most subtle and most nuanced performances in in both of those two sequels is from a guy with a squid for a face beneath <laughs> kind of prosthetics and cgi uh that he still managed to kind of render a, a memorable villain. That's, that's some skill. I mean, the, and the the effects for Davy Jones are still pretty much flawless, even 15 years on. And, and that seems crazy that you know the, the the 15 years since since these films. It's true, you know, of a lot of the effects. That the crew of the Flying Dutchman they do still like with the original Pirates of the Caribbean. You can see how CGI is kind of caught up and how Uh, How you know even more seamless it is today, but the crew of the Flying Dutchman is still kind of pleasingly gnarly and gruesome, and still really effective. Just as a little side point uh, as well, that introducing Cutler Beckett, uh, Tom Hollander. He plays a he plays a nice sort of big bad. Let's use the Star Wars uh, vibe again. Almost like an emperor over emperor character overseeing kind of the, the villainous side of things. And Tom Hollander, it's you know he's worth watching in anything, um, and he's he's great. So, and while the story does sag a bit, and it is you know it, it's the the point where the bloat starts to set in, there are some genuinely fun action beats. So Davy Jones is pet kraken. His first full appearance is, you know, is really effective, really tense. And again, another really impressive kind of melding of the, the practical and CG effects. And the water whale chase and sword fight at the end. It is, you know, is genuinely, dazzlingly, dazzlingly improbable. But it's also a hell of a lot of fun, you know, in in the midst of this climax that the... Kind of the stunt work and the sword work and the the special effects with it again are really are really effective and it's 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 amusing. We still get some of the you know the comedy pratfalls in it. I think the the combination of all of these things. I think Verbinski, Gore Verbinski, for for all of his faults that he he's he's not very good at sort of trimming back on the bloat. Some of his films can be a bit kind of saggy, but he he can shoot an action sequence and. It maybe he needs to take a, a less is more approach from time to time, but uh, but he can certainly frame some action. I'm going to be even-handed about it. I think it's a, a bordering on a three-star film. Uh, it's it's not to the same standard as the first, which was great swashbuckling fun. It's this point in the film that you that that kind of affects what happens in at World's End that you start to get the kind of the relentless double-crossing starting to appear. And the, the the film starts to kind of disappear up its own stern, <laughs> and and the, the problem is that the film, in terms of that that clarity, doesn't get any better from there. It's also kind of the point that the, the, the Jack Sparrow character starts to become a parody of himself. That you know it gets progressively worse again as the movies go on. He goes from being uh, a bit of a scoundrel. And a bit of a loose cannon, but with a with a workable plan to just a bit of a, a bit of a fool as the as the films go on. Yeah, he's quite smart, really. He
3: sort of covers his yeah. smart.
0: I think, and and this is this is something I, I said because I uh, on the the Monkey See Monkey Review Facebook page, I have got a review of Salazar's Revenge, and one of the things that I lament in that is from the first parts of the Caribbean film and the moment where you see the the digitally de-aged Jack Sparrow outsmarting Salazar that you see that there is a there is a smarter Jack Sparrow and a more interesting watchable Jack Sparrow in there i think that i think Johnny Depp's time in the series has pretty much come and gone i don't think there is really a way to to kind of continue the series in that in that vein and i think that's a real missed opportunity but they are yeah I, apparently the, the series is continuing but it's has uh yeah. but margot robbie's in a, in uh producing and potentially looking at starring in roles so taking it off in a in a different direction uh, yeah so um with dead man's chest and i think what could have helped the pacing of the whole film is there's that whole section in the cannibal village at the beginning it could have been a lot more focused uh you know you could have easily lo- lost that sec that sequence and not lost anything from the film, and it would have brought the film's runtime down by twenty minutes. Would have made it a lot, a lot leaner and a lot more enjoyable and a lot more focused. And and it happens again with at World's End. There's that kind of gangs all here approach that you've got the Lee Arenberg and Mackenzie Crooks Mortal Pirates joining the crew for no other reason than that they were quite popular in the first film, and and they they don't add an awful lot to the story. Uh, it happens again in at world's end where the two stupid guards from the very first film turn up <laughs> sort of randomly in the in the final battle mm. it's uh yeah um I mean moving on to at world's end, I struggled with this, but if we're going if we're gonna if we're gonna look for the positives, I think the one thing is uh, you know Jeffrey rush returns for the third one, and again he's very much welcome back. he's got this great way with words that you know give him some. Florid pirate language and a bit of scenery to chew on, and he looks happy. (laughs) And I think I I think having him there, you know, to offset the the Elizabeth Swan and the Will Turner characters, and just making, you know, he he knows he's in a big slab of ridiculousness, but he just looks like he's having fun with it. And again, in in the few sequences that that David Jones has got in the film, he shows more sort of emotion and is more interesting in his character development they, they could have made more around that i think for the third film because uh, obviously Hans Zimmer solely scored the second and third films uh he didn't fully score the first film but it's probably its strongest in at world's end i guess if you were really clutching at straws it's quite brave there aren't many blockbusters that would lean into the absolute weirdness that at world's end does uh, like the whole sequence with Jack in Davy Jones's locker, even though that scene feels slightly pointless and solely there for a bit of a, a callback to his entrance in the first film. Uh, which if you if you rewatch them close together you can kind of see that kind of the visual similarities. And there's there's just you know there's too much dicking about with the, the allegiances and the confusing motivations <laughs> without without really caring about any of the characters and and, and that's where the you know this is where the, the bloke comes in um there are you know there, there's some good visual gags there's a great visual gag with uh, involving uh tom hollander and a mast. speaking of visuals within the film again i think uh, tom hollander gets one of the one of the best moments of the whole sequence uh, with his uh, his slow motion walk down the steps at the end, with you know flying wood and cannonballs all around him, visually, there are moments like that. And the production design is 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 lovely throughout the whole thing. The different pirate ships, the different pirate costumes, the sets, everything that kind of goes into that looks sumptuous. It, for the fact that it was one of the most expensive movies ever, I think it was the most expensive movie ever made at the time the money is there, it's on the screen, you can see it. But it's it's just such a shame that that the the rest of the film around it is just such a, a great big fat bloaty mess. Although um yeah. I'm not sure it, it I'm not sure it's as bad as on Stranger Tides, which has twenty minutes of a fun uh <laughs> twenty minutes of a fun opening sequence, uh which is, you know, admittedly quite entertaining and then proceeds to to waste Ian McShane, who is great in a really limp Blackbeard role, and and then Salazar's Revenge, I think, is is a two and a half three star film. It's it's just it's its own thing. It does some fairly fairly sort of limp stuff as well, but it, it's not as kind of offensively bloated as the <laughs> as the, the the previous two three films were. But yeah, Why
3: I, did they change? Why did they change the name?
0: I don't know, but I think I think "Dead Men Tell No Tales" uh, sounds—it's a better name. It's a better name, and there there's also a reference to "Dead Men Tell No Tales" within
3: it fits the pirate theme much better.
0: Yeah, but it's actually it's actually said, or it's actually there's there's a moment in one of the films that has, uh, I think it's sung or is part of a lyric to a song, Um, and so that that actually links to it. but but yeah, I, I, you know if if we're going if we're gonna stick with the, the in defence of theme, I think there are some impressive visual things, some impressive technical things, and some nice moments with all of them. I think Dead Man's Chest is a better film than At World's End, but it's where the rot starts to set in. But if you go in and, and you know s- split it down into into two hour and a half sections you might just be able to get through the full 3 hours but um, but yeah i think the action towards the end of the third one i know i said golovinski can could do action the problem is that the the part of the final ship battles just becomes noise and water and fury and it it does become a little bit wearing and there there's the, the whole little plot conceit that happens in the middle of it that's a, a bit jarring as well um but but there are but there are moments within that that uh are, are kind of yeah that that was that was not not awful but uh but yeah so give them a go if you feel like it <laughs> gentlemen what were your uh what were your recollections of those films <laughs>
2: uh my recollection of the films were i liked um curse of the black pearl and you were right hmm. it had a you know more right than it you know what was that? what did you say? He had, more, more, had uh, yeah more than it. Had didn't it, it was... have any right
0: to be as good as it was. Basically, yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. that's what
2: it was, and I think it was nice, and it was it gave a kind of. I mean, that in, in to be fair was a little bit over long, a little bit bloated, and everything like that. But I think it was a very good. Um, I think it was very good considering it's you know, you know the content and the source material, and then uh, yeah, the sequels were pretty. It kind of went the way that we thought it would go, really, wouldn't we? The second one being bigger, louder you know bangier and then uh the third one to be fair was probably um uh, a little bit different to what anyone could have predicted in the sense of it was just a little bit kind of surreal at points and uh i think you know if anything really it was probably one of the bravest turns the third film has done in the trilogy
0: yeah brave doesn't necessarily equate to being good but that's
2: true that's true. I just, all, all i can recommend <laughs> really is that sequence where he was it was him in kind of limbo wasn't it on the boat yeah i remember that that's the standout of it, and i think that was in the first 15 minutes Yes,
0: yes, it was. And again, it's it's it was brave to to as I said to lean into that weirdness. But yeah, it just
2: uh, there was, it was again too much bloat. Yeah, oddly I own so, I own them. So I don't know. I just I I, I own them. I've only in the box set. I think I've only ever watched Black Pearl again. So yeah. I think I've seen them all once, or I've seen yeah two and three once and uh, not revisited.
0: Yeah, yeah. I. I wish I, I, I kind of wish I hadn't revisited Dead Man's Chest because I always, I always rated it higher than maybe I did this time. I think one of, one of the things that I did just as a, a slight um, detour is I played the the Lego Pirates of the Caribbean game on Xbox, and it has the the, the full Hans Zimmer score for sequences, and the game was actually really quite fun and. Uh, reminds you of moments of the film and the score is that good it actually made me think oh you know what maybe i'll go back and revisit them i didn't at the time but now i've gone back and done it having watched the first one i I, I see why i didn't go back and revisit it at the time but they're not they're not complete dead losses there are there are some nice things as i say the score the technical uh some of the performances uh so yeah give give it a go if you feel up to it.
3: Can I add one thing? Yeah, of
0: course. Go for it.
3: For those of you who are hankering after old uh, Jack Sparrow, old Johnny Depp, thrusting his way through everything Jack Sparrow, um, and you haven't watched it, and you've watched the rest, and you're sort of like, oh, I kind of miss, you know, there might be something I haven't seen. If you check out Wedlocked, I don't know if you guys know about this. No, what's um, this? It's a little uh, mini featurette sort of film that they did as a prequel to the first film. So you get to see Johnny Depp running around as Jack Sparrow in his classic Jack Sparrow-iness. And they filmed it around the same time. And it's a little bit of like how he got his name. And they talk a bit about the the pirate code and all that kind of stuff. So if you just want an extra, I don't know, I think it's 20 minutes or something, Mm -hmm. uh, and you just want to see a bit of old Jack Sparrow and you haven't watched Wedlock, go find wedlock is that an extra on the dvd or blu-ray i think it's on an i think it's on the blu-ray or dvd yes okay Mm, might be worth checking that out
0: see if it's on youtube and so after all that we're gonna create a film of our own gentlemen it's time for
1: pitch Pitch battle. battle
0: I like the slightly nautical, waterlogged sounding pitch battle there. It was was nicely themed. (laughs) So, for those of you that haven't listened to Monkey See Monkey Review before, uh, we do our regular pitch battle. The idea behind a pitch battle is that we take an item, an actor and a genre, and we create a film pitch based upon that. We have five minutes to do that, and we each come back and present our pitches to the assembled throng. If you like the pitch, sound off on social media, which we'll give you all the links to at the end. And, uh, yeah, so this week, our pitch battle items have been given to us by the lovely friend of the show, Donna Spagnol. And she is an old friend. She's an old friend of both mine, Kevin, and Craig's. And she has given... (laughs) Oh, God. This will be fun. Okay. So, our actor... (laughs) Is Brian Blessed. Yes. Uh, the item is an empty Skittles packet. And wow, okay. And the genre is a psychological thriller. So, me, Chris, Kevin and Craig have five minutes to prepare our pitches. But for you, we'll be back in two seconds. <laughs> right, gentlemen, pens down. Time is up. I can tell you, uh, fair listener, uh, you wouldn't have heard the sounds of absolute anguish down the line during that last five minutes. So we are ready to go.
3: Uh, Shall I go first?
2: Yes, go for it. Why not? Go for it.
3: Okay. That was such an optimistic word, Ready.
0: Well, you know, what? I'm giving, I'm giving you, I'm giving you an opportunity there, Chris, just to get your thoughts in order while we're doing ours. <laughs> Bless you. Okay. <clears throat> in the dead of night, he will come for you. You won't know when. You won't know where. But he's out for revenge, and you will hear him coming. Did you eat my bloody skittles? This summer, Brian Blessed invites you to Taste the Rainbow! I
3: knew it! I knew it! I knew it! <laughs>
0: Very good! Very good! <laughs> so, we go. The... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I just
3: want to say, I. I'm so glad I changed the title of mine because (laughs) I knew we were going to pick the same thing. I knew it. I can feel it. Yeah. Oh, no.
0: I was trying to get a Gordon's Alive joke in there. It it wasn't coming. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Who would like to go next?
1: I'll I'll happily go go next. Oh, you
0: go for it. Okay. (laughs) Go for it, Craig.
1: Hello, sir. What we want you to do is think fruity. Five alive. No, no, no. More more empty. Not quite alive! For God's sake, Brian, come on. Uh, anything, Brian, come on. Uh, Gordon's alive! This summer, Brian's battle with himself is real. Summer 2021. Brian Blessed is in. A yet-to-be-titled psychological thriller based around confectionery. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, that's good that oh, i, I kind of wish much.
3: i kind of wish it, i kind of wish our <laughs> listeners at home could hear our conversations during those five <laughs> minutes because <laughs> that made that so much <laughs> fun that was nice though craig I,
2: I kind of like i remember back when bond films would be coming out there would always be like there'd be a picture of like pierce brosnan Summer and it'd be like in production I kind of get the feeling that, that if you have a nice like Brian Blessed picture and it'd be like in production some kind of psychological thriller you know, to be titled
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'd see it, I'd buy I'd
2: buy my ticket there and then
1: <laughs> I, I think you've given it more credit than it's uh, it deserves <laughs> Kev <laughs>
2: Lovely. Kevin,
0: Chris, who would like to go next? Uh,
3: I'll, I'll do i got to get the improv out the oh, way i it, it. Okay. Oh Okay. <clears throat> <laughs> a young FBI cadet must receive and use help from one of the most no- notorious murderers of all time. He was a sweet killer, a madman who will pull the wrappers off his victims. <laughs> In this psychological thriller, <laughs> it's his first day on the job. He has a great big bushy beard. It's Brian Blessed in *The Silence of the Rainbow*.
2: <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Oh, well I'm sweating. I'm sweating. <laughs> I'm sweating. Okay, all right then. It's my go. I'm gonna. Go for Bear it, Ken. with me one second. I'm gonna. I think I might come away from my microphone a little bit. <laughs> very much like chris i've kind of gone the uh, kind of improv route so uh, bear with me this could this could land or not we'll see <laughs> we'll see how this goes okay so what i want you guys to do is i want you to imagine uh, the new line cinema logo and essentially okay. while you hear the uh, the following voiceover you're going to see lots of images of what's going on in the film and the voiceover is pretty much going to describe what's going on here we go new line cinema logo Hello, little bride, blessed, it here. a psychological thread of existence and purpose. He identity, It's mind perception. He began have it gone come wrong from behind, sensational. He'll have reality. have death, existential crisis, automatic, he what I? and all more need Empty skittles, and am going right in there. the mind, yes, identity, psychological, something like that.
1: There we go. Oh, Oh, that was the best one we've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) Oh superb. Absolutely superb. (laughs) I'm crying. I was kind of. The
2: funny thing was, was I took the mic. I, I took you guys out of my ear, um, went across the other side of the room, <laughs> and, <laughs> and just kind of did that. And then I was going kind of like thinking, okay, well, I don't know how it's going. Tremendously well, sir.
1: Tremendously well.
2: I am.
0: <sighs> I'm desperately trying to regain composure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as there's, per usual... There's only everyone, one winner. There's only one winner. <laughs>
3: yeah. It's Mr. Brian, bless it. Oh. oh, That was as, absolutely... As always, listeners, um, tell us if you thought one. <laughs> oh. And uh, please do give us um, an actor's name, an item, and a genre for next time and see how uh,
2: you can make us lose our wits. <laughs> <laughs> i like to think of people kind of oh. listening to this in bed and kind of silently dozing off to our dulcet tones, and then that happening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm gonna put I'm gonna put a noise warning on the next one. <laughs> oh, that that was absolutely brilliant. So, gentlemen, I think uh, I think we've had more than enough fun there. I think it's time to do our tracks of the trade. Three, three. <laughs> So who would like to offer up their track of the trade first? Could
2: I go first, sir? You most certainly can. Marvellous. Please, sir. <laughs> Please, sir. could can I go next? Okay. Uh, this one comes from the wonderful Carter Burwell, who often does a lot of stuff with the Cohen Brothers. Um, a soundtrack that I will actually mention, actually. Miller's Crossing. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But that's not what I'm going forward this week. I'm going to go with In Bruges. Uh, and the wonderful score for that film, which is a controversial film, but the score is absolutely amazing. And I want you to think of the kind of like Bruges, if anyone's ever been to Bruges, lovely place, especially during winter, and this takes place around Christmas. And the track I'm choosing is track 16. It's called The Kiss Walk Past, which is from the uh, near climax of the film, um, where there's a wonderful kind of like dolly angle, you know, a a dolly pan, I think you call it, isn't it, when the camera kind of goes around, where um, uh, the wonderful Colin Farrell Um, as a little kiss and the music kind of like builds to a little crescendo Um, and it's lovely and it's romantic and it just looks wonderful and the you know music coming in and everything it's it's all great Um, and then there's kind of like the promise of um, darker things to come so uh, yeah I'll go for that please
0: lovely who would like to offer up theirs next
2: I'll go brilliant
3: I got that first (laughs) mine is from the uh, movie soundtrack to uh, Cowboy Bebop the movie coming off the heels of the wonderful and successful and gorgeous and everyone should watch it uh, Cowboy Bebop animation television show uh, from the film that follows the story of Spike's story uh, it is the track called Time to Know by the Seatbelts, B-Waltz um, and uh, it's the Seatbelts do the soundtrack for the um, television show as well, and uh, they make a return for this because they have a very particular sound that is synonymous with Cowboy Bebop, and it, it would have been a shame if they, if they hadn't, and thankfully they do. Um, and I would suggest go and listen to the whole soundtrack to Cowboy Bebop and from the television show. The main theme is something that I used to have on my phone all the time, and um Uh, anyway moving on um so yes this is a bit less gung-ho than that but it's a lovely it's a lovely track so time to know by the seatbelts
1: craig you were poised to go i after you mate well i've gone for uh this time around i've gone for marmalade harvest from probably one of my favorite uh cinema experiences of the last sort of 15 years was taking uh, my eldest to see Paddington 1 um, and then Marmalade Harvest is, is the first piece of music that you get in the film and it's that bright, upbeat uh, feel uh, from the composer Nick Urata and it was just a wonderful sort of panning shot across the deepest, darkest Peru uh, and Paddington is you know bringing in all of the... Uh, the oranges uh with his uncle and aunt and it's just bright it's upbeat uh and it's everything that paddington is you know it's it's everything is right with the world um and you know positive outlook on on the world so yeah and i i absolutely love it
0: oh fabulous and paddington yeah it's just they're just two absolutely lovely films i completely agree so for my track of the trade i've gone slightly appropriately i've picked uh, it's the first of a zimmer one two punch because on the next episode there will also be a zimmer film with the theme of from films that he scored that i don't particularly like <laughs> so <laughs> uh, appropriately enough i've picked uh, a track from pirates of the caribbean at world's end and i've picked the what is essentially the, the final final tune of the of the film it essentially acts as a bit of a suite a combination of of all of the different uh all of the different themes and motifs from throughout the last few films it's called up to drink up me hearties yo ho and it just encapsulates all of, the, kind of the, the great bits of the, the Pirates of the Caribbean music. It's it's kind of sweeping and pumping. It's got the famous uh, He's a Pirate theme sort of stitched in there. And it, it's just a great, it's a rousing piece of music. And it, it does make me smile. So that is my choice for this week. And so that brings us to the end of the Monkey See Monkey Review podcast. Episode 14. We are cranking through these now. And uh, as ever... Thank you very much to Christopher, to Kevin and to Craig. All three of you for your time and and for the laughs. It's been an absolute cracker again this week. It's gone on a lot longer than I anticipated. Uh, yeah. So uh, it, it's it's just lovely that we can have these, these movie discussions. Uh, all I'm going to do is to leave you wonderful people with a couple of things uh, for, for us. Please, if you are enjoying the show and you're... Podcast provider offers you the opportunity to leave a review. Please, please leave a positive review for us. Uh, first of all, just so we know that you're listening and enjoying it. Uh, also, what I'm going to do is all of our social media links, uh, including our Twitter, our Instagram, our Facebook, uh, our link to the Tracks of the Trade Spotify playlist. Uh, which is where all those four tracks that you've just heard us mentioning, they'll all be uploaded onto that list uh, for you to listen to. I'm going to add all of those to the show notes, so you can just follow those links to each of those things and hopefully get in touch with us. Uh, But for now, all that remains for you to do, until the next time on the Monkey See Monkey Review podcast, is to say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye, lovelies. Farewell.
2: Bye.